Section 15, Book 4, Chapter 1, Part 2 of The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 2, by Henry Charles Lee. Book 4, Organization, Chapter 1, Part 2. The Inquisitor General and Supreme Council. Carlos was industriously stripped and anointed and purged and prayed over, but to no purpose save to terrify and exhaust him. For a year correspondence was vigorously kept up, obtaining from the demons answers curiously explicit and yet evasive and contradictory. At one time it was said that he had been bewitched on a second occasion. September 24th, 1694. Then the demons refused to say more, except that their previous assertions had been false and that Carlos had not been bewitched. There were also contradictions as to the sorceresses employed, who were named and their addresses were given, but the efforts to find them were fruitless. The destinies of Spain were made to hang on the flippant utterances of hysterical girls, who unsaid one day what they had averred the day before. The affair reached such proportions that the Emperor Leopold officially communicated the revelations of a Viennese demoniac, implicating a sorceress named Isabel, who was searched for in vain, and he also sent to Madrid a celebrated exorcist named Fray Moro Tenda, who secretly exorcised the king for some months, which naturally aggravated his malady. Meanwhile, a storm was brewing. The queen's temper had been aroused by her political defeat. She was angered by the enforced separation from her husband, and she was inflamed to fury when she secretly heard of the second bewitching of September 1694, which was attributed to her. A month after her learning this, Rogoberti died, with suspicious opportuneness, June 19, 1699. This failed to relieve her for soon afterwards three endimianadas in madrid were found confirming the story and implicating both her and the former queen regent her wrath was boundless and she vowed fray froilan's destruction for which the inquisition offered the readiest means to this end she sought to induce carlos to appoint in rocaberte's place fray antonio foch de cardona a friend of Don Juan Tomas, Admiral of Castile, who had fallen from power when Matia was dismissed. The king, however, who was resolved on pushing the investigation, appointed Cardinal Alonso de Aguilar and sent for the papal commission. In announcing his choice to Aguilar, he said it was for the purpose of probing the matter to the bottom. To this, Aguilar pledged himself and promptly sent for the senior member of the Suprema, Lorenzo Foch de Cardona, a half-brother of Antonio, telling him that all indications pointed to the guilt of the admiral who must at once be arrested and his papers seized. Cardona replied that this was impossible. Semi-proof was requisite prior to arrest, and here there was no evidence. The queen grew more anxious than ever. Aguilar was taken with a slight indisposition. He was bled secundum artem, and in three days he was dead, on the very day that his commission arrived from Rome. Suspicion was rife, but there was no proof. 
Carlos, by this time, was so enfeebled that the queen obtained from him the appointment of Baltazar de Mendoza, bishop of Segovia, with whom she had a satisfactory understanding, he pledging himself to gratify her vindictiveness, and she promising him a cardinal's hat as the reward of success. The first move was against the Austrian exerciser Frey Tenda, who was arrested in January 1700, on a different charge, but under examination he described the revelations of the Madrid de Mianax, made in Froilan's presence, and he escaped with abjuration de levi and banishment. Froilan was then examined, but he refused to speak without the consent of the king, under whose orders he had acted and with strict injunctions of secrecy. Meanwhile, the Dominican provincial, Torres Padmoda, used his authority to obtain from Arguel at Cangas the letters of Froilan, on the strength of which he promptly accused him to the Suprema in the name of the order, to which Froilan answered that he had acted under Rocaberti's order at the pressing instance of the king, in what was sanctioned by Aquinas and other doctors. Mendoza informed the king that Froilan was accused of a grave offense, but could not be prosecuted without the royal permission. Charles resisted feebly and then yielded to the pressure of the queen, and Mendoza, by dismissing him and replacing him with Torres Padmoda. Stunned, dazed, and helpless, Froilan obeyed Mendoza's order to betake himself to the Dominican convent at Valladolid, but on the road he turned his steps and sought refuge in Rome. A royal letter to the Duke of Useda, then ambassador, was speedily obtained ordering the arrest of Froilan on his arrival, as he was under trial by the Inquisition, which permitted no appeal to Rome, while the tribunals of Barcelona and Murcia were instructed to throw him on arrival into the secret prison. He was shipped back to Cartagena and duly immured by the Murcia tribunal. Then followed a struggle for mastery in the Suprema. Mendoza procured the assent of the members to the appointment of special calificadores, or censors, to consider the charges in evidence. Five theologians were selected who reported unanimously, June twenty third, 1700, that there was no matter of faith involved, whereupon the Suprema, with the exception of Mendoza, voted to suspend the case, which was equivalent to acquittal. Then, on July 8th, Mendoza signed an order of arrest and sent it around for the signatures of the members, who unanimously refused, whereupon he summoned them to his room and with alternate wrath and entreaty vainly sought their cooperation. In a gust of passion, he declared that he would have his way, and in an hour he had ordered three of them to keep their houses as prisons and the Madrid Tribunal to prosecute the secretary for refusing to countersign the warrant. Foch de Cardona was the only member left, and this was because his half-brother Antonio, now Archbishop of Valencia, was a favorite of the Queen. This violence caused no little excitement, which was increased when Miguelez, one of the members, who talked freely, was arrested one night in August and hurried off to the Jesuit College in Compostela, followed by the jubilating, or retiring on half-pay, of all three in terms of reprobation, as unfaithful to their duties, while the secretary was banished. 
the council of castile intervened with a consulta pointing out to the king that the members had been punished without trial for upholding the laws the canons and the practice of the holy office the queen became alarmed and urged mendoza to be cautious but he assured her that in no other way could her wishes be gratified meanwhile he had sent the papers to the tribunal of murcia with orders to prosecute froilan and send the sentence to him it obeyed and twice submitted the case to its calificadores and other learned men who reported in favor of the accused whereupon it voted for his discharge then mendoza evoked the case to himself and committed it to the madrid tribunal he brought froilan there and confined him in a cell of the dominican house of nuestra senora de otosha where in the power of torres padmoda he lay for four years cut off from all communication with the outside world his very existence being in doubt while the tribunal selected another group of calificadores who had no difficulty in finding him suspect of heresy carlos had died november first seventeen hundred appointing in his will philip of anjou as his successor until whose coming the queen dowager was regent for some months the members of the suprema jubilated by mendoza's arbitrary assumption of authority were kept in reclusion but were finally liberated mendoza who belonged to the austrian faction was relegated to his see of segovia but this brought no redress to froilan the dominican general antonin cloche a frenchman without bias to either party in the inquisition felt keenly the injustice committed against him and sent from rome successively two agents who for three years labored in vain for his release mendoza was at bay and in defiance of the traditions of the spanish inquisition he appealed to the pope to whom he sent an abstract of the proceedings clement the eleventh was delighted with this surrender of spanish independence and referred the case to the congregation of the inquisition which after much deliberation reported that it could not act without seeing all the papers mendoza replied that he was in exile through political reasons and could not furnish them which was false as he had carried them with him he sent an agent with an argument drawn up by the new fiscal of the suprema juan fernando de frias at the instance of the nuncio at madrid in which the suprema was denounced as the canonizer of a doctrine heretical erroneous superstitious and leading to idolatry the paper had been prepared in answer to one by foch de cardona arguing that the members of the suprema had not merely a consultative but a decisive vote and that the inquisitor-general had no more frias however had foolishly devoted himself to proving that the interrogations of the demonics were heretical this did not suit the nuncio who openly declared that in place of refuting cardona he had published a thousand scandals and was a fool of no account the argument which he had printed was condemned and suppressed and he himself was suspended from office in seventeen o two by the queen marie louise gabrielle of savoy who was regent during the absence of philip in naples it was probably about this time that the suprema notified the tribunals that any orders from mendoza contrary to its own were suspended 
The intervention of the nuncio shows that the struggle had widened far beyond the theological question as to the lawfulness of interrogating demons and the guilt of the luckless Froilan Diaz. Two important principles had become involved, the appellate jurisdiction of Rome and its original jurisdiction in determining disputed points in the internal organization of the Spanish Inquisition. Pope Clement had eagerly welcomed the opening afforded by Mendoza, not only to claim that Froilan's case should be submitted to him, but he had also assumed, in Mendoza's favor, that the Suprema was subordinate to the Inquisitor-General, through whom its powers were derived from the Holy See, which alone could decide the question. All this was vigorously combated by Cardona, with the aid of the Council of Castile. In the name of the Suprema, which now had three new members, he rehearsed all of Ferdinand's decrees against appeals and argued that the Suprema had always been a royal council, subjected to the king, and that the only distinction between its members and the inquisitor-general lay in his prerogatives as to appointments. He earnestly supplicated the king to order the seizure of a letter of Cardinal Paolucci, papal secretary of state, committing Froilan's case to Mendoza or to the Archbishop of Seville. The nuncio, on the other hand, insisted that the papacy had never divested itself of its supreme authority to judge everything throughout the world, and that the Pope was the only authority entitled to construe papal grants, including the functions of the Suprema. While the controversy thus raged, Froilan lay forgotten in his dungeon. Practically, the decision lay with the king and, in the vicissitudes of the War of Succession, Philip had more pressing matters to vex his new and untried royalty. He seems to have vacillated, for, in July 1703, there was circulated a paper purporting to confirm the jubilation of the members of the Suprema, and to commit Froilan's case to Mendoza. This drew from the Suprema two energetic consultas, pointing out Mendoza's arbitrary course and the injury to the regalias of his appeal to Rome. Philip was embarrassed, and, by a royal order of December 24th, sought advice of the Council of Castile, which responded January 8th and 29th, 1704, by vigorous consultas denouncing Mendoza's actions as inexcusable violence. The case seemed to be drawing to a conclusion when it was delayed by a new complication. The succession to Mendoza was actively sought by two churchmen of the highest rank, but the king declared that he would not appoint any one of such lofty station, when both withdrew and one of them, or someone in his name, started what Cardona calls the diabolical proposition that the Inquisition had become superfluous. The few Judaizers and heretics remaining could be dealt with by the Episcopal jurisdiction. The case of Froilan Diaz could be settled by his bishop, and thus the enormous expense of the Holy Office could be saved. This revolutionary suggestion was warmly supported by the Princesse d'Arson, but Philip rejected it. Wisely, no doubt, for even had he been inclined to it, his throne was as yet too insecure to risk the results of such an innovation. The Admiral of Castile was a refugee in Portugal whence he was actively fomenting resistance to Philip. Mendoza notoriously belonged to the Austrian party, and Philip could ultimately scarce fail to decide against him. On October 27th, he sent for Cardona, with whom he had a secret interview. 
resulting in a paper drawn up for his signature the next day. On November 3rd, a royal order was read in the Suprema restoring to their places the three jubilado members, who were to receive all the arrears of their salaries. This was followed November 7th by a decree addressed to Mendoza, ordering him and his successors to respect the members of the Suprema as representing the royal person, as exercising the royal jurisdiction, and as entitled to cast decisive votes. Moreover, he was, under pain of exile and deprivation of temporalities, within seventy-two hours, to deliver to the Suprema all the papers concerning Froilan Diaz, and to make known whether he was alive and in what prison. The next day it was ordered that the Suprema should decide the case, and, on November 17th, after hearing the proceedings, a sentence was unanimously rendered, absolving Froilan, restoring to him his seat in the Suprema, with all arrears of salary, and also the cell in the convent del Rosario assigned to the royal confessors, of which he had been unjustly deprived. A copy of this sentence was ordered to be transmitted to all the tribunals for preservation in their archives. Froilan Diaz was duly reinstated in the Suprema, and we find his signatures to its letters at least until 1712. In reward of his sufferings, Philip nominated him to the See of Avila. He was not, however, a persona grata in Rome, and Pope Clement refused his confirmation on the ground that he must first see the papers in the case and determine whether the acquittal was justified, thus asserting to the last his jurisdiction over the matter. Philip held good and would make no other nomination until after Froilan's death the sea remaining vacant from 1705 until it was filled by Julian Cano y Tovar in 1714. As for Mendoza, he was obliged to resign the Inquisitor Generalship early in 1705. When, in 1706, Philip returned to Madrid after his flight to Burgos, Mendoza and the Admiral, with many others, were arrested as traitors, and the Queen Dowager was escorted to Bayonne. Mendoza, of course, missed the coveted cardinalate, but he survived until 1727 in peaceful possession of his see. In replacing him as Inquisitor General, Philip was true to his maxim not to appoint a man of high rank, and he nominated Vidal Marin, bishop of the insignificant See of Sueda, who had distinguished himself in 1704 by his gallant defense of that place against the English fleet that had just captured Gibraltar. In confirming him, after some delay, Clement took occasion, in a brief of August 8, 1705, to reassert the papal position and urgently to exhort him to maintain the subordination of the Suprema, he is to remember that he is supreme, and in him resides the whole grant of apostolic power, while the members of the council derive their power from him. Over them he has sole and arbitrary discretion by deputation from the Holy See, and the consultas of the royal council have caused great scandal and spiritual damage to souls by seeking with fallacious and deceitful arguments to prove that he after receiving his deputation, is independent of the Holy See. If he will examine his commission, he will see that his powers are derived from the vicar of Christ, and not from the secular authorities, who have no rights in the premises. 
and whatever is done contrary to the rights of the holy see is invalid and is hereby declared to be null and void this was doubtless consoling as an enunciation of papal claims and wishes but the bourbon conception of the royal prerogative was even more decided than that of the habsburgs the exhortation to reassert the supremacy of the inquisitor generalship fell upon deaf ears and the rule in the suprema continued to be what foch de cardona described in seventeen o three that the majority ruled if there was a tie the matter was laid aside until some absent member attended while if the meeting was a full one the fiscal was called in to cast the deciding vote in its relations with the tribunals the suprema had even greater success as it gradually absorbed the inquisitor-general it exercised his power which was virtually unlimited and irresponsible over them until it became a centralized oligarchy of the most absolute kind to this of course the progressive improvement in communication largely contributed in the earlier period the delays and expenses of special messengers and couriers rendered it necessary for the local tribunals to be virtually independent in the routine business of arresting trying sentencing and punishing offenders only matters about which there could be dispute or which involved consequences of importance would warrant the delay and expense of consulting the central head items in the accounts and allusions in the correspondence show that when this was necessary the outlay for a messenger was a subject to be carefully weighed the matter was complicated by the fact that the central head was perambulating moving with the court from one province to another and its precise seat at any one moment might be unknown to those at a distance the permanent choice of madrid as a capital by philip the second broken by a short transfer to valladolid was favorable to centralization and still more so was the development of the post office establishing regular communication at a comparatively trivial cost although at first the inquisition was somewhat chary about confiding its secret documents to the postman at first there was hesitation in intruding upon the functions of the tribunals a letter of november tenth fourteen ninety three from the suprema to the inquisitors of toledo asks as a favor for the information on which a certain arrest had been made explaining that this was at the especial request of the queen where there was not unanimity however a reference to some higher authority was essential and we have seen that in fourteen eighty eight torquemada ordered that all such cases should be sent to him to be decided in the suprema and in fifteen o seven zemenes went further and required all cases in which the accused did not confess to be sent to the council this seems speedily to have become obsolete but the rule as to discordia was permanent in fifteen o nine a letter of the suprema extends it to arrests and all other acts on which votes were taken when a report with all the opinions was to be forwarded for its decision the costs attendant on these references were not small for we happened to meet with an order may twenty third fifteen o one to pay to inquisitor mercado a hundred ducats for his expenses and sickness while at court examining the cases brought from his tribunal of valencia possibly for this reason references to the suprema were not encouraged for about this time it ordered that none should be brought to it except those in which there was discordia and in these it expected that the party should be represented by counsel 
The same motive may have led to an order in 1528 limiting these references to cases of great importance, but this restriction was removed in another of July 11, 1532, when it was explained that, if an inquisitor dissented from the other two and from the ordinary, the case must be sent up. Practically, the authority of the Suprema over the tribunals was limited only by its discretion, and inevitably it was making constant encroachments on their independence of action. Its correspondence in 1539 and 1540 with the Valencia Tribunal shows an increasing number of cases submitted to it and its supervision over minute details of current business. In 1543, the case of a Morisca named Mari Gomez La Ceseda shows that a sentence of torture had to be submitted to it, and its reply indicates conscientious scrutiny of the records, for it ordered the re-examination of certain witnesses, but if they were absent or dead, then she might be tortured moderately. A further extension of authority is seen during a witch craze in Catalonia when, to restrain the cruelty of the Barcelona Tribunal in 1537, all cases of witchcraft, after being voted on, were ordered to be submitted to it for a final decision, and, in a recrudescence of the epidemic between 1545 and 1550, it required all sentences of relaxation to be sent to it, even when unanimous. On this last occasion, however, the Barcelona Tribunal asserted its independence of action by disregarding the command and a phrase in the instructions of 1561 requiring, in all cases of special importance, the sentences to be submitted before execution was too vague to be of much practical effect. The supervision which the Suprema was thus gradually developing was most salutary as a check upon the irresponsibility of the tribunals, whose acts were shrouded in impenetrable secrecy except when scrutinized with more or less conscientious investigation by visitors at intervals of five or ten years. The conditions in Barcelona as revealed by successive visitations between 1540 and 1580 show how a tribunal might violate systematically the instructions, and how fruitless were the exposures made by visitors when the inquisitors chose to disregard the orders elicited by reports of their misdoings. They were virtually a law unto themselves, no one dared to complain of them, and the victims' mouths were closed by the oath of secrecy, which bound them under severe penalties not to divulge their experiences. The whole system was so devised as to expose the inquisitor to the maximum of temptation with the minimum risk of detection, and it was the merest chance whether this power was exercised by a lucero or by a conscientious judge. The consulta de fe and the occurrence of the ordinary furnished but a feeble barrier, for the record could generally be so presented as to produce the desired impression, and the consultors, proud of their position and its immunities, were indisposed to give trouble, especially as their adverse votes did not create a discardia. When Salazar, in 1566, took the unusual trouble of investigating the interminable records of the individual trials, the rebuke of the Suprema to the inquisitors of Barcelona speaks of the numbers of those sentenced to relaxation, reconciliation, the galleys, scourging, etc., after the grossest informalities in the conduct of the trials. 
the world can never know the cruelties perpetrated under a system which relieved the tribunals from accountability and consequently any supervision was a benefit even that imperfectly exercised by the distant suprema there seems to have come a dawning consciousness of this possibly stimulated by the revelations of salazar's investigations into the three tribunals of the crown of aragon which led to the concordia of fifteen sixty eight in the same year a carta acordada of june twenty second ordered that even when sentences of relaxation were voted unanimously the process should be sent to the suprema for its action from this time forward its intervention on one score or another gradually increased from the records of the tribunal of toledo between fifteen seventy five and sixteen ten it appears that it intervened in two hundred and twenty eight cases out of one thousand one hundred and seventy two or substantially in one out of five while in only eighty two of these cases or one out of fourteen was their discordia sometimes as to arrest and trial sometimes as to torture but mostly as to the final sentence end of book four chapter one part two recording by kathleen nelson austin texas september 2010